This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Just like everyone else listening, COVID has changed my world in ways I never thought possible. How we'll remember this moment is something that as a historian I've often thought about, and a reason I wanted to sit down with an expert at the Smithsonian who's focused on that very question. Dr. Alexandra Lord is an accomplished historian of medicine and health and a leader in the effort to document COVID, a perfect guest as we approach the two-year anniversary of the onset of the pandemic. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Dr. Alexandra Lord, who is the chair and curator of the Division of Medicine and Science at the National Museum of American History, which is a component of the Smithsonian. And we're going to be talking about the work to document and curate and tell the story of COVID, something that we're living through, but hopefully something in the future that we'll look back on. So, but before we get there, um, uh, Lexi, where did you grow up and sort of what put you on the path to becoming a historian at the Smithsonian? We love to know more about the people that we're talking to. And and what was your first job in the field before you became what you are today? But how did it all come together? So I'm actually from Albany, New York, and I went to school at Vassar College. And I came uh, under the influence of a wonderful professor who was a historian of medicine Um, And I was really fascinated by this field because it seemed to engage with so many issues that are at the heart of our society. Um, One of the things that we rarely talk about is illness and sickness and how that has changed over time. I think the pandemic has really brought this issue to the fore. And so we do talk about it now. But certainly when I was in college in the late 1980s, um, it was not at the forefront of how people thought about the past. Um, And I was really fascinated by that because we live in such a different world from people in the past. Um, And as far as sort of my career path or what a historian of medicine can do and does, (laughs) um, I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which has a very strong history of medicine program. And I then became a professor and I worked for four years as a professor um, and then decided I wanted to really be a public historian and really engage with the public about history. And so I became the historian for the U.S. Public Health Service. Most people aren't aware of this, but federal agencies often have historians on staff. Um, They help the agency understand where it's been, and they can then use that history to track where they might go. And that was really exciting to see history being used to plan and plot for future pandemics. Uh, I worked at the Public Health Service for a few years, and then I actually did become a preservationist. And I worked at the National Park Service, where I oversaw the National Historic Landmarks Program. Um, and after a couple years doing that, I decided that I really would like to return to the history of medicine. And so I came to the Smithsonian in 2015, and I've been here ever since. So you're like a you're like a triple preservation threat. Like you're you're you 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 almost like you know, it was like the EGOT or something like that. Like you've covered all the all all the grounds. You've gotten the the Emmy and the the Golden Globe and the Oscar and everything like that. Like you've covered all of it. That's cool. Um, 
And interesting that you have that perspective because we want to talk about um, at, w- at some point like sites of COVID and if, if there's going to be sites or things put on the National Register. So obviously, you know that inside and out having come from the NHL side as well. So super cool. This is exciting. I'm, I'm interested in talking about this, even though it's sort of a, a morose topic. And I guess that's kind of like your uh, your business. You deal you deal in sickness and not always happy in sunshine. But so before COVID... Um, you've been there since 2015, so you were there in the pre-times. What were you working on at the Smithsonian? What's like a day-to-day? How big is your crew? What kind of work and curation were you doing prior to COVID? So I oversee the Division of Medicine and Science, and our job is um, really documenting um, and telling the story about the history of medicine in the United States. Um, So over about a 250-year period, Um, Our collection is mostly focused on the 20th century, but we do have some extraordinary objects from the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, And our job at the Smithsonian is to tell the history of America through objects. Um, And so we are always collecting. We still are collecting objects around um, and from the 18th century, um, but we're also collecting objects around stories today. Um, And that means that for us as historians of medicine, we interact with communities um, so that we can tell their story at the Smithsonian. But we also spend a fair amount of time with the community of uh, public health and medical professionals. And so we have engaged in conversations with them uh, to help us document ongoing stories, not just the past. It's always hard for a historian uh, to think about the present and the future. Um, And so we are often um, talking to physicians, nurses, x-ray technicians, people who work in hospitals uh, to understand their story and to help us document that story. So that makes sense. And it's sort of this broad history of medicine and curation and collections and things like that. How soon after COVID hits do you realize internally or like how soon did you get the team together and you're like, this is a thing we need to start collecting. Like, I'm curious, like we all have like our memory of when it all started for us. And I think it was like, you know, it was March 13th or something like that, that Friday. And a lot of us were sent home and we were taking home my, they're behind me here. You can see them in the video, my plants from the office and like being like, well, I guess, I guess I got to take these home, you know, at least for the next couple of weeks. Right. Um, and how soon did you realize internally, like we need to start collecting and how soon did that happen? So because my colleagues and I have been in an ongoing conversation with medical practitioners uh, for years, um, we've been aware that public health experts had been predicting a possible pandemic uh, for decades. We were overdue for a pandemic and we knew this um, and we've known this. And that has meant that we have often looked at events like Ebola uh, or SARS uh, when it emerged and begun to think about those events in the context of a possible pandemic. Obviously, those events um, did not explode into pandemics, um, but we were well aware that we should be watching news um, and reading medical articles um, and talking to medical practitioners early on. So we became aware of the possibility of a pandemic um, in January. Um, And we reached out to and began speaking to public health experts across the country about this. Um, 
And we realized, um, at least in January and early February, that we should begin to think about um, documenting this story, just as we had begun with SARS and Ebola. And we realized, you know, it's possible this is a minor blip, but the blip can be interesting for historians too. And then, of course, events intensified uh, in March, and that was when we realized we really needed to focus on this story and that it was going to be an incredible um, story. Um, I hesitate to say the medical story of the century because there have been so many medical stories of the century, but we realized this is going to be a major story. Right. And, and in, in some ways, maybe I hope it's the medical story, at least the, the sad medical story of the century, maybe curing it or something like that would be nice. Um, so how do you, so you know that it's something you need to do. You start early. How do you organize it? And where do you draw the line in collecting? Um, and what, what do you collect? I mean, you talk about your, you know, your object driven. So it's not just documents and things like that. Like what kind of things are you collecting? So, uh, when we think about documenting this kind of story, it's really important for us to reach out to talk to different members of the community. And when this began, this was very much a medical story. So it was really important for us to talk to um, public health experts at the federal, state, and even local level. Um, we thought they had perhaps the best understanding of this. Um, but obviously, as this event grew, we realized this was a story that was going to um, really impact um, non-practitioners, ordinary Americans across the country. And so uh, we put together at the museum a task force um, that looked at and thought about uh, this story. Our division, the Division of Medicine and Science, is one of four curatorial divisions at the museum. Uh, we also have a division of uh, political and military history, a division of culture and community life, and a division of work and industry. And so we began to think about the ways in which the pandemic was impacting uh, work and industry, political uh, history. And um, we began a conversation with our colleagues about how we should think about collecting. The museum released a press release asking the American public uh, to contact us with their stories and their objects. And, we are still engaged in that. We are still looking for stories and objects. We still want to hear from Americans. In fact, to be honest, we, we always will. Uh, this is a huge story, so we'll always be collecting around it. And we'll always be asking Americans to share their story. Um, so we began to hear from different people, especially uh, in the summer of 2020, um, and as a task force, we were able to gather, assess, uh, decide which kinds of objects we at the Smithsonian should collect. But we've also been in touch with our colleagues at museums across the country, in fact, across the world. Um, and sometimes we've said to people, well, this object might be better uh, at your state historical society because it tells a state story, or this object might be better at uh, this specific museum uh, because it relates to the story that the object tells. So. It has been a slow process. Um, we are constantly evaluating objects and comparing and discussing which objects we should bring in. So do you have any favorite objects? Are there anything that like we should know about that's sort of cool? I mean, is there like, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like, 
you remember that mask that Donald Trump wore when he finally wore a mask? Like, do you have his mask? Do you have like what kind of like weird oddball stuff do you have? Or do you have a favorite? You know, it's um, hard to say because I have a lot of favorites, Um, but there are some things that really stick out in my mind. So we collected objects around the first vaccination in the U.S., and that was a vaccination of Sandra Lindsay, who is a a nurse in New York. Um, And so we collected many of the objects associated with her being vaccinated, not just the vaccine vials. Um, and um, the objects that were used to vaccinate her, but also objects that helped tell the story of why Lindsay volunteered to be the first American to be vaccinated. Um, she was on the front lines of COVID. Uh, she herself is uh, African, uh, Afro-Caribbean American, um, and she felt it was really important to stand up and encourage people uh, of color to be vaccinated. Um, but she was also really shaped by what she had seen uh, working as a nurse during the early months of the pandemic in New York City, where things were incredibly intense. And I think of all the objects that we brought in related to Sandra Lindsay, what I like best are her clogs. Like many nurses, she wore clogs and the clogs became worn down because she was so much on her feet. So you can see the wear and tear um, that this impacted um, in strange ways. Obviously, uh, there was a huge psychological impact on her uh, and physical toll, but you also see it in the object as well. That's one of my favorite objects. That's a high pro- profile kind of object, but <clears throat> I also like um, the objects that uh, really come from ordinary Americans and tell their story. So um, we've collected, obviously, a lot of masks. Um, I'm really struck by, um, we collected some children's masks. Um, Those are incredibly powerful, um, especially when you look at the fabrics that are chosen and you think about how difficult it is for a parent to persuade a child to wear a mask. Um, I also like um, masks that are repurposed. Um, We all now are starting to wear KN95 masks, Um, but in the beginning part of the pandemic, Masks were really poorly made um, and sort of, you know, just put together from the objects that you have in your house. Um, So we wanted to collect, as I always said, some really badly made masks. Um, And one of my favorite of those is a mask that um, someone made from a cap that they got at the 2020 Mardi Gras celebration in New Orleans. And that was a super spreader event, as we now know. So it has the cap has a lot of meaning in that way. But you also see how people suddenly began to take what objects they had at hand uh, to create something to protect themselves. Very cool. And just to just to put a bow on it, do you have Donald Trump's mask? We do not have Donald Trump's mask. Um, No. I wonder where that is. Yeah. All right. So why don't we take a quick break here? And then when we come back, we'll talk about, you know, exhibitions of this kind of work, when you stop collecting it, what this tells us about time and maybe some sites. Um, And we'll do that when we come back here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, 
The campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're excited to be joined by Dr. Alexander Lord, um, who is uh, with the Smithsonian. And we're talking all about things related to collecting COVID and preserving COVID. So, you know, before we took our break, we were talking about how um, COVID you know, came about and how you started collecting and what you've collected and unique things that you have. When do you stop collecting COVID items? I mean, I guess you probably, it, that that's not really part of the consideration, right? If you're still collecting things from the 18th century, it'll always be sort of part, I guess. But but w- what's that? And, and also, when do you start exhibiting items associated with COVID? So... We're always collecting. We will always be collecting around COVID. We know that 50 years from now, someone will find something in their attic uh, and contact us and say, I think this mask was worn by my mom during the COVID-19 pandemic. Are you interested? We always get emails like that. What's been very interesting for us about COVID is that it's really raised the profile and understanding of the history of medicine as a field. And so with COVID, we've actually gotten a tremendous number of offers Uh, related to different uh, pandemics in the past, and most notably uh, the pandemic of 1918-1919. Interestingly enough, the Smithsonian did not have any objects related to that pandemic. Um, And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, One of them, and I think probably the most important, is that um, at the time that was not really seen as the kind of thing that a museum like ours would be documenting. They tended to document sort of great uh, inventions, um, great moments in history, and the 1918-1919 pandemic, which impacted just ordinary people, wasn't a part of how Americans told their story. Um, And so we did not have objects from that period. People also tended to throw those objects out. Um, Unlike today, when everyone is documenting their lives through TikTok or Facebook or whatever, um, people in 1918, 1919, they kept scrapbooks, but they didn't document and think about their lives in the same way we do today. So with COVID, we've been really stunned because we've received many offers from Americans who've said, you know, I have this object related to 1918, 1919. Would you be interested in that? Um, And so I think that illustrates sort of like how we're always collecting around past pandemics and how we'll be collecting 100 years from now around COVID. And when might we see a COVID exhibition or is there already one that people can take a look at? There is one in the works and we're looking to have that open in 2020, uh, 2023 or 2024. It's called Do No Harm. And that will include... Uh, a discussion of COVID um, in the museum. We do actually, and have had a a COVID-related object um, on display in our museum, which has been the flags that were created to memorialize uh, the people who died and were put up on the National Mall. Um, And we hope, too, we know that many people can't come to our museum physically. 
So we will begin putting the objects that we have collected online soon as well. And that should be within the next few months. So people will be able to see and understand that story of COVID through the objects online. So, you know, this is a preservation podcast. We talk about the intersection of objects and places and buildings. And we have a whole series on food and the the, the flavor of America and all those sorts of things. But when it comes to COVID, I mean, obviously you're very focused on objects. But given your background with the National Historic Landmark Program, you sort of have a unique position kind of seeing both of these sides. Are there sites that should be documented right now? Are we not doing a good job of documenting them? Should we be out documenting and taking and scanning, uh, you know, testing sites and saying that this is going to be, you know, should be recognized, this parking lot should be on the the National Register because, you know, 5,000 people a day went through it? Or, you know, what... What should we be doing as as built environment preservationists to document this? Because I'm not really sure, we, you know, we're so wrapped up in trying to save things from 50 years ago. A lot of times we're not focused enough on what's happening right now. What do you think about that? And it's, it's you, you're in a perfect position given all of your experiences to talk about this, I think. Yeah. And as you said, there are tremendous challenges. Um, You know, preservation uh, of the built environment is just really extraordinarily challenging in many ways. And I'd say that in terms of medicine, it's especially challenging because medicine is always about the next best thing. You know, it's always about the future. It's not about the past. And when I was at the NHL program, we struggled with this because um, scientists are always wanting to update their lab, change it make it uh, more reflective of new developments. Um, So preservation of medical and scientific events is extraordinarily challenging. In terms of the kinds of sites that I think that we should be looking for, um, some of them, and we all know that the tricky part with preservation is getting the owners on board. Um, So it might be difficult um, to get agreement from people, but if we had a list of, you know, the ultimate sites, we didn't have to worry about owner's consent or anything like that. Um, I would say that um, the nursing home in Kirkland, Washington, which was the start of the pandemic, um, to me, that is an extraordinarily important aspect of this story um, that should be preserved, should be marked, should be known, and should be understood. Um, I'd make the same argument with some of the hospitals uh, in New York City, um, which saw just the brunt of um, the pandemic in the early part of this. Um, And additionally, because I think you need an uplifting story, it would be great to uh, document uh, and either list in the register or nominate as an NHL, the site where Sandra Lindsay was vaccinated, the first vaccination. Um, and in terms of just national register, I, I agree with you, the parking lots where people are being vaccinated, um, the hospital, uh, not hospitals, but the libraries, I mean, uh, where people are being vaccinated. I got my booster at our public library. Um, and that's a really interesting element of that story, the ways in which vaccination is being pulled out and removed from medical sites. And so medical sites are key in this way. Um, So those are just a couple of the places that I think uh, would really be great to document, obviously, as well, 
something like Dr. Fauci's office at NIH, but I know NIH is always uh, in, involved in updating um, and making sure that uh, they have, um, uh, you know, the, the latest um, technology. Well, and that's that's a place where perhaps scanning could come in. Maybe uh, maybe we can we can uh, talk them into allowing us to go in and do a laser scan of Dr. Fauci's office, and then at least you have a snapshot. You know, um, it may not always stay that way, but that's a that's a good way of capturing it these days. I'm curious. I, I love to ask people who are engaged in something unique and new what surprised them. Anything about this like really surprised you? I mean, you you know this stuff inside and out, and you've been working in medicine history. But did any aspect of the COVID collecting process like be like, wow, I didn't see that coming? Or even just the pandemic. There are a couple elements of the pandemic that also shocked me. You know, as a historian of medicine or just a historian and, you know, we as preservationists or curators, um, we always get to play hindsight. And so when I looked back at past pandemics and epidemics, um, which have often been a focus of my research, you know, I've always not thought scornfully, that would be a little too harsh, but I've always been thinking sort of like, why, why did these communities not come together? How did they reject uh, the, the ongoing scientific consensus? Why? Um, and so when this pandemic started, I thought we would do better, to be honest. I really did. I thought we would um, really control and contain the pandemic. I also thought, um, you know, my um, my sister-in-law is an epidemiologist who works at CDC, and he mentioned packing up your office. And so when we began packing up our offices on March 13th as well, she called me and said, um, pack up for the long haul. And she's, she said, December uh, 2020, you should be packing for that. It was interesting because I told my boss that. He was like, December 2020? That sounds insane. We like to joke that my sister-in-law can be somewhat pessimistic. And this time she was overly optimistic. Um, I believed her when she said 2020, December. Um, and I thought that that seems reasonable. That seems viable. That seems correct. Um, it has startled me how much longer this has taken. On the flip side, on a more positive element in terms of collecting, um, I've been really touched by how many Americans have shared their stories with us and surprised by that. Um, it's also been really surprising to see, you know, how much people do document their own lives <clears throat> and share their stories. And that's been really important to us as historians. Um, you know, when I was researching past uh, epidemics and pandemics, it's often very difficult to get at the stories of ordinary people during this moment of crisis. I think for people in the future, they will be able to know and understand what this uh, pandemic meant for people like you and me, not just the people like Dr. Fauci. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. I mean, it's um, sometimes historians sort of bemoan the fact, oh, people don't write letters, they don't write things down. But obviously in this case, we are able to collect a lot of those things. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, so if people want to learn more about this work, your project, where can they find all that? So I would encourage people uh, and your listeners to go online to our uh, museum's website and you can learn about um, 
first and most importantly, how to contact us with information about objects that you think that we should be collecting. Um, and we are looking for people to not only share their objects, but if you have a suggestion as to objects in general that we should be collecting, um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and uh, we also hope to begin putting up and people will begin to see all of the different objects that we have collected within the next uh, two to three months um, on the web. And it's an extraordinary range of objects. It's not just medical objects. It's also objects that relate to the day-to-day -day life of people during the pandemic. Awesome. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can just click on that and, and get themselves right there. Um, this has been so much fun. Last question we asked, probably really difficult for someone who ran the NHL program, but uh, what, what's uh, your favorite historic place or site? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is a really difficult question. Can I, can I give a couple answers? I suppose we'll allow it. <laughs> I love the hospitals at Ellis Island. They're extraordinary to me. Um, Ellis Island was a place that we associate with grief and sorrow in many ways, but it was also a place of extraordinary promise. And what is really fascinating um, is that the United States um, provided medical care to immigrants uh, who could be cured. So there, it was a line that they did draw around, but they did provide uh, medical care to immigrants who arrived uh, with diseases that could be cured um, and they could be treated at the hospital at Ellis Island. Today, those hospitals, um, like many early 19th, uh, early 20th century hospitals have really fallen into di disrepair. Um, and sometimes, you know, with preservation, it's amazing to see what the place looked like during its heyday, but it can also be really powerful to see it when it's fallen into decay. And so I have to say, on the one hand, I, I want the hospitals preserved. On the other hand, I'm really glad I've had the opportunity to walk through them before they were preserved. Um, and in terms of just NHLs, I would definitely say um, I found the Ludlow uh, strike, um, the site associated with that strike in Colorado, just really powerful. Um, there was also a site, an archaeological site uh, in the Midwest, which uh, was uh, created and established uh, by an African-American who had been enslaved in the South. And he had bought his own way out of uh, slavery through developing a system of uh, refining saltpeter. And he then founded a town and sold lots in this town uh, to bring the rest of his family out of slavery. And that town was racially mixed. Um, and to me, there's just something so extraordinary about that place. Um, and the idea of a community. Um, that was mixed uh, in that period of intense segregation and prejudice. Well, those are those are a couple really powerful examples, and I love the Ellis Island one as, as a as a byproduct of Ellis Island. So, um, I uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. This is just so fascinating. We could spend a lot of time talking with you. Maybe we'll have you back in a year or two and see where we're at in the COVID story, and uh, if we're back in our offices by then. Um, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lexi. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. And it's fabulous to talk about and think about historic sites again. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. 
don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.